Brother, I'm going to miss you up there. I'm going to have to get like a life-size uh, Andy deal right there. Because I, I always knew where to look for, like if I'm lost in a sermon, I would just look up there and just telepathically give me the next thing to say. And <laughs> we only have, to my recollection, two professors that go here. And Andy was one of them. Peter Watson's the other one. And, uh, uh, and, and, and when I first met Andy... Um, we, we sat over at the, our other building, or it was actually our office center over there, for an hour or two, just having the greatest time, and I did everything I could to keep up with Andy's intellect. And I think he thought, oh, this guy's pretty smart, and he didn't know, and I won't tell him until now, that I was doing everything I could just to understand the words that he was saying. They were over two syllables, you know, and, <laughs> and so, brother, we are going to miss you, and you will be back. That's a prophecy, a promise, and a threat. So... <laughs> Oh, this is not my sermon. Ah, here we go. We are in a series right now, kind of an in-between series. Whoa, papers everywhere. Um, and the series is from the book of Acts to the book of John. And if you open your Bible right between Acts and John, you'll notice this series. It's, it's a white page, actually, in between the two, going backwards. And... This is about taking the book of Acts, taking six concepts from the book of Acts and saying, how do we get those concepts that we're, we're, we saw in the book of Acts, how do we get them so that we don't just rush past them, but that we get them to land in our hearts? And so like I said, in the next six weeks, you're not going to worry about filling your notebooks or anything. You're not going to learn anything new, I promise. Not, I don't know if you ever do here, but maybe you probably do. But what we're really trying to do is hit your heart these, these six weeks with some of these concepts. The passage I want to look at this week from Acts is a passage I didn't get a chance to, to preach on, and I really wanted to. Uh, it's one of the reasons I wanted to do the book of Acts, was Acts 26. You don't need to turn there. We're only going to spend a minute there. We'll look at a couple paragraphs from Acts chapter 26. Paul is before a king, <coughs> excuse me, before a King Agrippa, and he's giving his story of what happened to him. Why he is this guy who he is, this itinerant evangelist going from place to place to place. Why is he doing this? And he's, give, he's giving his, his reasoning to this king. And actually, he's already in, kind of in trouble with the law. And he, this is part of his process, part of his testimony. Anyway, just, I, I want to focus on some of the things that, that Jesus says to Paul and then what Paul said to the king about why he was doing what he was doing. Okay, take a look at this. Acts 26, starting in verse 12. He says, on one of these journeys... Uh, excuse me, let me just pause here. Paul's talking about before he became a follower of Jesus, he was actually a hater of Christians. So he, he hated Christians. This, this new Christian movement had just started, and Paul, being a very zealous Jew, hated this new sect of Judaism called Christianity and did everything he could to destroy it. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. 
I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of God or Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I, I want you to look at some things here. I got them dimmed here. It's a little hard for you to tell back. Yeah, there you go. I want you to look what Jesus said to him. He says, I am rescuing you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm going to pull you out, Paul. And here's what I'm going to want you to do. I'm sending you back to them. Here's why. So you can open their eyes. Are you following me? Oh, you're good. You're good back there, Greg. Um, and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And, and then he says, the ultimate reason is this. Got all this, I'm doing this. I yanked you out, Paul. I'm sending you back that you can turn them from darkness to light, from Satan to God, and here's why. So that the big reason is this, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Isn't that crazy? Think about that for a minute. The person who you and I owe has made the, the effort to do all this so that we can get our debts canceled. That's crazy talk. Please let that hit you like crazy talk. Not only does he say that, but he says they get a forgiveness of sins. And the next thing is, and they get a place. They get a place, a home, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. My wife and I lived, and our, our kids, as long as they've been alive, in one house for 15 years. When you open the door, it smells like the Tricler house. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it's a good thing to me. It is home. Every room has a different kind of smell. I know what it looks like just by its smell and by its look and by what it is. It is a home. Jesus doesn't call you and just say, I'm going to forgive you. He wants you to come home. He wants you to smell them. Right, whatever. But <laughs> then he goes on to say this to King Agrippa. Verse 19, he says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, where he was going to trash them. He's going back there for a different reason now. Then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. This is why the Jews seized me and the temple courts tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. So I stand here to testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul's message to them was this. It's in one line there and it says this. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That's what he's doing. He's saying, whatever you're hanging on to for life, if it's this planter, I'm hanging on to this planter for life, let go. And hang on to another thing for life, this planter, God. That's why I have two planters up here. Prove that you're hanging on to this planter by a changed life. That's what he says my message. You know my message? That's the message. That's the message. This morning I want to talk about the second quality to ignite your spiritual life from the book of Acts is forgiveness. Receiving it and giving it. Now, this is by far the hardest theological concept 
in the Bible. I am not kidding you. This is the hardest thing to do in the Bible. Receive forgiveness and give forgiveness. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Books are not written about the, the difficulties of this compared to like the Trinity or the divinity and humanity of, of Christ or the sovereign will of God versus the freedom of our choices and all that. That's, that's cupcake stuff compared to this. So I hope you came this morning with the mind of an Andy Gustafson. <laughs> and bro, and the heart of an Andy Gustafson. I hope you came that way. Because if you didn't, this is going to bounce off you. This is hard stuff. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Matthew 18. Uh, if you want to look at your insert or just follow along on the screen, whatever gives you joy, that's fine. Matthew 18. We're going to look at a passage, uh, a great passage. Jesus, is, Jesus is, a, is a genius, which of course is the understatement of the day. But Jesus is going to deal with this issue. Matthew 18. We're going to start in verse 21. We're using the Acts passage to springboard us into another passage to look at this issue, receiving and giving forgiveness to others. You know what? Including ourselves. Sometimes it's the hardest person to forgive. Verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, just stop right there. You've got to know the magnitude of this question. If you've if you got your Bible open, if you look just previous, what this whole section was about was Jesus just got done teaching. If, if you look to verse 15 there, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. And if, if, he, if he confesses and, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he won't listen, take one or two others along and, and, and try to convince him that he's, he's in the wrong. You're trying to correct him. You're trying to help him. Matthew, or excuse me, Matthew 18, 20, or excuse me, 15 to 18, 15 to 20 is, is probably the most uh, famous passage on how do you correct another person correctly. And it starts just by privately, and it goes more and more publicly. And you're always doing it not to, to rip on them, but you want their best. You want them to become more like Christ. You're not, you're not doing this for revenge. That's God's job. You're doing this to help them. He goes on and on. So then... Peter is thinking, oh, okay, that makes sense. A common teaching at that time, the rabbis taught that if someone sins against you, if they do it three times, you have to forgive them. But on the fourth time, ixne on the or forgiveness faith. <laughs> you're done, right? Three strikes and you're done. You can't keep doing that. So Peter thinking, hmm, well, we got Jesus on the scene now. The rabbis say three times, just had this teaching on what does it mean to go to seek my brother and seek reconciliation to forgive him. Let's see, I can, I can more than double that. Three plus three, or maybe Peter was bad at math and tried to double it, I don't know. But he says, should I do it seven times? Now, just think, if someone came to you and did the same thing to you seven times, I mean, seven times. That's a lot. Jesus' answer, Jesus sets a new standard. He says, the rabbis say three times, here's what I say. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And if you look in your little note, if you've got a Bible open, you'll have a little note. The, it, the text is ambiguous. It could be 77 times, or in, in Greek, word order doesn't mean anything. So it could be seven, uh, it could be seven times 70. 
Either one is, or, is anyway, it, it's supposed to be a big number, all right? He, he's not trying to say count to 77 or 490 and then 78 or 491, you're done. Because, Cor, you're a dead man then, because, you know, I've been counting. Uh, <laughs> the kid thing went, that was 491. It's Carol on my uh, 17th anniversary yesterday, and I know, yeah. She deserves a medal, and I really mean that. Anyone who stays with anybody, for se I do too, you know, just stay with her. <clears throat> she's not here, she's in the nursery. If you could stop, if you stop the tape for a minute, I'll tell you her 490 sins. Uh, no. Uh, but just think about that. Think about that, how daily I have wounded that woman. We were writing our vows. I remember this distinctly. We were sitting at, at uh, uh, what's the name of that pizza place on Cedar and 50th, right down there by Minnehaha. What's that? No, it's not Fat Lawrence. It's a little north of there. But which one? Carbonis. Yep, we were sitting at Carbonis. We wrote, I remember the booth we were sitting in. We wrote our, our vows, and then we compared them with each other because we kind of wanted to merge them, you know, and make one. And I promised her, I said, here's what I want to stand. I promise to fail you and hurt you like no one else has ever done. She says, there's no way you're standing in front of my friends and family and telling them that. <laughs> I said, all right, I won't say it publicly, but I promise to hurt you and fail you like no one has ever done before. And I have. Jesus is not trying to say it's a number. Whammo, you're done after that. He's trying to say, no, no. You got forgiveness all wrong if you think it's a number. So he's going to go on, he's going to explain what that new standard looks like. Verse 23. He's going to explain the standard now. He's going to tell a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. He had to sell the guy into slavery and just get whatever he could. Now, you just, you got to get a little bit of uh, the context of what's going on here, otherwise this won't have as much impact. First of all, there's a, there's a famous Lutheran pastor, I think he's retired now, his name is Eugene Lowry, and he makes a great observation on this passage, something to really think about. We're going to use it throughout this passage. He says that for a king or a ruler, in order to understand this phrase, he was brought to him, you got to understand, kings and important people were upstairs. They were on the second or even third floor. You walked up the stairs to go see the king. And every step, it was you wondering, were you going to come back with your head still attached? All right? You didn't know. This was a big deal going up the stairs to see the king. And that's what's going on here. This servant comes, and he's going to go see the king. And every step, he's thinking, oh, 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 I'm a dead man. The king is trying to settle accounts. This guy owes 10000 Talents. 10,000 talents. Anybody have a shot at how much money that is? We want to take a shot? What's that? Uh, what I was told this morning by him was $4.5 billion, right? In today's dollars, that would be $4.5 billion. Now, that loses a little bit of its impact because at the time when Jesus told this story, there was not $4.5 billion in the world. This guy owed more money than there was. <laughs> so, I mean, 4.5 billion, we think, ah, you know, Bill Gates, write a check, done deal. No, 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 no. It's just more than if you added up all the money, this guy owed it. 
and, and, and you know, he brings the guy. I mean, we just got to think what this guy's knees would have been like going up the stairs. He's all good. King's going to settle accounts. Now, we have no idea how. That's a story. Don't make more of it. I don't know how he owes that much money. That's not the point. Point is, he does. He's going up the stairs and his knees are shaking the whole way. And the first words out of the king's mouth are, what do you think? I want my money. You owe me 4.5 gajillion dollars. And the guy says, uh, I don't have it. Well, what do you mean you don't have it? You owe it to me. Well, I, I don't have 4.5 gajillion dollars. All right. Then we'll sell you. We'll sell you and your wife and your I got to get something out of this deal. Everything you have, you, you're going to sell you into slavery, put you in debtor's prison, whatever it takes. We're going to get something out of it. Look at, how the, look at how the guy responds, verse 26. The servant fell on his knees before him. And he, he asks the most ludicrous thing you could possibly ask. He says, be patient with me. And I will pay back everything. That's stupid. Right? How are you going to pay back 4.5 gajabillion dollars? But that's what he asks for. The king does not give him what he asks for. Look what he does. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. King doesn't give him what he asks for. He mercifully cancels this debt and lets him go. That's what happens to the guy at the top of the stairs. That is the picture, by the way. That is the picture of a person who walks in this world and comes to Jesus Christ. You owe 4.5 gajabillion dollars. And you say, Lord, just give me more time, I'll pay it back. And he says, I'll do better than that. You come to me and you ask for it and I'll give you complete cancellation. But that's not where the story ends. Jesus is trying to make a point and he says it continues on. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who had owned him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow, servants, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Now, picture the imagery. What has just happened? This guy's at the top of the stairs. He owes all this money, more than he possibly could pay back, more than his lifetime, more than his legacy of grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren could ever pay back. He's been forgiven it. He's walking down the stairs. <laughs> Wait, there's that bum that owes me money. And he runs over there to him. At the bottom of the stairs, at the bottom of the stairs, he grabs a guy and he grabs him by the neck. Says, you owe me money. Hundred denarii was. Uh, uh, remember last week we talked about denarii being about a day's wages. So roughly in today's dollars, be around eight thousand dollars. No insignificant sum, certainly not. 
But compared to 10,000 talents, it, it is ludicrous. When I was in Michigan, we, we were over there for a vacation time. When I was in Michigan, I think it's like, I don't know, state law or something. Every time you go into a convenience store, they always ask you at the end of it, would you like to buy a lottery ticket with that? It's just like, huh? And I always answer the same way, no, thank you. I'm good at math. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's fun because you can say that same joke at all the different, they always ask you. It's like, oh. They kind of look at you like, you're smart act, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> but the lottery gets up to what? $250 million, $300 million? Just think if you went in to, to, buy, to essay here. And they ask you, would you buy a lottery ticket? And I'm, all of a sudden, you're bad at math for a second. And you say, sure, I'll buy one. And, and you buy one, and your buddy's with you. And they say, hey, can I get a Coke? And you, and, and you put the Coke up there, and you buy the lottery ticket, which is the buck. And you, you buy the Coke at 89 cents. And, Buck 89, you do the scratch-off thing, and it says, you've just won $300 million. And you being, now all of a sudden, remember, you're pretty good at math. Remember, oh yeah, about half of that goes to taxes. I'm walking out of here with $150 million. Small bills, please. $150 million. Dude. $150 million. I hope your tithers to hope is all I can say. <laughs> $150 million. I guarantee you the first words out of your mouth when you get outside is, dude, you owe me 89 cents. <laughs> I don't want it now. That's what's going on here. He finds this guy and he says, dude, you owe me 89 cents. And I want it now. story continues. The servants go back up the stairs and they tell the master, tell the king what had happened. Verse 32, then the master called the servant back up the stairs. I don't know how he went up the stairs. Part of me says he was so deceived by this whole thing that he thought, oh great, maybe he's going to give me more money. Maybe perhaps he'd realized what he'd done. I doubt it. He says, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which would never happen. This time the king makes him pay. Now, you're maybe sitting there going, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can he do that? The king already canceled his debt. How can he then ask for it back? Now, two things here, two things here is, one is Jesus is telling a parable, and he doesn't have to cross all his I's and dot all his T's <laughs> to make it work. I said that wrong on purpose. Uh, but, you know, he doesn't have to do that. He's trying to make a point. But also, there is something about, throughout Scripture, that how you live life at the bottom of the stairs matters on whether what took place at the top of the stairs really took effect or not. Paul says it in, in the book of Acts when he said, remember, he says that they would repent, let go of that table, turn to God, hang onto that table, and prove their repentance by their deeds. There's, some, there's a link there. There's a link there. You're not, you're not, you're not, I'm not saying you get saved if, uh, you're, because you're a good person. No, 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 no. All I'm saying is there, if you're hanging onto this table, 
for dear life, there's a change. Jesus' ultimate point is verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your Father from your heart. Forgiveness is not optional for those who have been forgiven. If you've been to the top of the stairs with the Almighty King, when you come to the bottom of the stairs, it is not an option or not to forgive. It's not an option. Now, let's get really practical here. How in the world, how in the world do you forgive someone who's really hurt you? Really hurt you. How do you, how do, you do that? In 1992 to 1996, um, I was uh, just down the street here, three blocks. Uh, I worked at Bethlehem Baptist Church. And at that time, uh, I, I, I happened to be in contact with Pastor John Piper over there, and he had a sheet of paper that he was writing that it was really encouraging, because sometimes you think these people are really smart, and he, believe me, ooh, that dude's smart. But uh, I, it, was a, it was a sheet of paper, and all it listed was a typed-up page of about oh, 40 questions that he had. It's great when you talk to really smart people. Ask Andy afterwards what his questions are. Because you might go, dude, I know the answer to one of those. It's an odd-numbered question. I can see it back of the book. You know, I know the answer to that one. I'd better not tell him because I feel kind of smart that he doesn't know. And I No. But one of Piper's questions at that time that he shared with us uh, over there who were staff was, um, what does it mean to really forgive? And he worked through that question for about a year. And in 1994, he preached a sermon. And he, and he talked about two things. And I just want to share with you what, what he kind of came up with here. What, what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. And I think it's profound. And it's, it's not all that um, difficult. It's just, I think it's, it's right on the mark. So I'd like to, to use a little bit from, from that sermon that he, quoted, he preached in 1994 on this. He looked at a man by the name of Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson is pushing serious daisies now. He died in 1686. He was an English Puritan. And if you know anything about the English Puritan movement, you were really persecuted for being in, in, in England and being a follower of Christ outside of the traditional Anglican church. And, and they were for reform, and they, they got really, really picked on. Matter of fact, that's how a lot of people came over to this country were from the English Puritan, Puritan movement. He wrote a book called The Body of Divinity when he's talking about this issue of how to forgive or when to forgive. And this is Thomas Watson's, Thomas Watson's answer to when do we forgive others. And he says this, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, that's, that's a you know, 17th century thing. It doesn't mean you're going to TP them or something. That's not what it means. It, you know, you got to put it in the right context. But wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, show ourselves and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. And if you just think through biblically, those are the things that it talks about as far as how do you, or who are the people, the candidates for forgiveness and what should we do with them. 
Because if it says, look at the first one, it says resist or strive against all thoughts of revenge. Romans 12, 19 says never take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God because vengeance is mine, I will repay. If you look at the next one, it says don't do mischief. Don't try to do evil to someone. First Thessalonians 5, 15 says see that no one repays another with evil for evil. Wish well to them. Luke 8, 28. Bless those who curse you. Probably the most radical thing in all of the Bible about being a follower of Jesus is you can't curse those who curse you. You bless those who curse you. It says you should grieve at their calamities. Proverbs 14, or 24, 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. It says that we should pray for them. Matthew 5, Jesus teaches in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Seek reconciliation with them. It's my job to seek to get right with them. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be always willing to come to their relief. Exodus 23, verse 4 says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. That's radical stuff. That's what it means to forgive. Now, look what it doesn't say, though. This is hugely important because I think sometimes we get hung up on forgiveness because we, real, we forget what it doesn't say to forgive. Three things. First of all, forgiveness is not the absence of hurt or anger over another person's abuse or sin toward you. It is not, is not feeling good about what was bad. That's just schizophrenic, okay? It's not that. In fact, this is the most silly thing, but I say it every time I talk about forgiveness. You can't forgive someone who hasn't wronged you. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but it's really true. You can't forgive someone unless they've seriously wronged you. On, on last Friday, I stood up, Rich Schoenert, who's a pastor of a big mega church out in uh, uh, Rose, Roseville, uh, uh, I can't remember the, Tr Trinity, uh, Trinity Baptist, Leo? Trinity, Trinity. Calvary, thank you. Calvary, and I just stood him up for lunch. I made the appointment too. It's like, oh boy, I really want to talk to you about something. And, and I made the appointment. I just totally dissed him. And so he wrote me back and said, missed you. And I emailed him this big groveling, you know. And he writes back, no big deal. You know why? Because there's no big deal. Okay? He had to pay for his lunch. I'll, I'll, I'll make it up to him and let him buy anything he wants off the menu as long as it's not over a buck next time. But that's not a, you know, that's not a big deal. Uh, you know, there's no tension between Rich Schoenert and I. I hope not, at least. It's only when you do something against someone is there a way. So it's right to feel that way. It's okay to be hurt or angry over sin. That's right. Second, forgiveness is not the absence of wanting or desiring consequences for sin. When I was on staff with the Navigators, um, which is a Christian organization based out of Colorado Springs, the president of the Navigators in 1990 had a son named Steve. Steve was a taxi driver. And in 1990, some guy called for a taxi and just decided that he wanted to kill somebody. And so he killed Steve. And Jerry White had to deal with firsthand what it was like to wrestle 
with forgiving the murderer of his son. And so, of course, not immediately, but after a season, he went and saw this murderer in prison. And he didn't want to hear the reasons. He didn't want to hear anything else, but he had to tell him, I want to let you know, I forgive you for killing my son. Now, Jerry White also wanted to see him put in prison. Those two are not necessarily in conflict with one another. There's consequences for sin, but there's also an emotional release. No longer wanting hatred, no longer wanting revenge, but sin has consequences. The third thing forgiveness isn't is I think sometimes people think of Christian uh, forgiveness as you can just abuse me and I will just say, oh, thank you, may I have another. Forgiveness is not the same of an unrepentant person as it is of someone who repents of their sin. Okay, then you can have reconciliation. Forgiveness of an unrepentant person may just be that you need to release them, you need to give it to God, hand over your anger to God, seek good towards them, but you may or may not ever be able to trust them. Thomas Watson in that same book says, we are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. Do you see the difference? Forgiveness is not an option for the Christian. You have to forgive. However, you need to earn my trust. You need to earn my trust. You may do something and you make a mistake with my finances, and I say, you know what, I forgive you, but I'm not going to let you in charge of my checkbook again necessarily. Okay, so forgiveness is not necessarily saying, fine, no big deal. No, it's a big deal. Now, with all that said, <clears throat> I want to think through our parable again <clears throat> and talk about the journey of forgiveness. How do you do this? How do you practically go about releasing someone? And it is a journey. It is not a series of steps, although I'm going to give them to you that way. But put them in a blender and mix them up because they don't come necessarily in this order. This follows a logical order, but if I know anything about life, it's not necessarily logical. It just comes in all different phrases. And so you might be doing it step four one time and step one. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow a pattern on it so you can have some, how do I do this? And even right now as I'm speaking, right now I'm convinced and I've been praying that the Holy Spirit is putting someone on your mind that you need to release this morning. Take this, take this process through with them. And it's a process. And it's not a one-time deal. You may need to re-release and re-release and re-release and re-release this person. First thing. Pray to remind, have God remind you how much your debt was. Pray so that you can be in the room at the top of the stairs. What was life like before you heard the king say, I forgive you of 10,000 talents. Some of you in this room have maybe never been forgiven of your 10,000 talents. You've never come to a point where you realize, oh my goodness, I owe God 4.5 bajillion dollars. I'm in deep trouble here. I have sinned, even a small sin, against a holy God is 4.5 bajillion dollars. And you need to come to the point where you're at the top of the stairs before you can have any hope of living life at the bottom of the stairs with any kind of forgiveness. You need to come to the point top of the stairs that says, 
get down on your knees and say, God, forgive me of this debt. And that right there is the key, is the gate, is the doorway, is the price paid so that God can say to you in full confidence, I do forgive you. And someone else has paid your debt. Someone else has paid 4.5 good billion dollars for you. His name is Jesus Christ. My son, fully God, fully man, he has paid the price for you. That is open to everyone. The tragedy in the world is the, the, the stairs to the top of the stair, the stairway is open for everybody. Come on up. And people don't. They stay at the top of the stairs and they choke one another. I encourage if you've never done that, even right now as I'm talking, you could do business with God at the top of the stairs and say, right now, Lord, would you forgive me of this debt? Then you turn around and you start walking down the stairs. And as you're walking down the stairs, because I want you to always live life, Hope Community Church, at the top of the stairs is people who realize what you've been forgiven. Don't ever forget that. I pray for you all, if you don't put anything on the prayer, your prayer cards, I pray that you would know the depths of your own sin. Not so you feel rotten about yourself, so that you feel awesome about how good God is because how much he's forgiven you. most freeing thing you can know is how sinful you really are because it shows how awesome the gift of Christ is. Otherwise, it's like me standing up rich. Uh, no big deal. No, it's a huge deal. You stood up God Almighty for lunch. Eh, follow the analogy if you can. But you know, this is a big deal. Live life at the top of the stairs and don't forget what happened at the top of the stairs. You're walking down the stairs now, though. What are you going to do? I got two things you're doing. First thing, seriously, I need to do this. I need to move, ask God, God, work in my life by the Holy Spirit right now because everything, everything within me, even one or two steps going down this staircase is starting to see people down there who have hurt me. And I want bad things to happen to them. I would even love to be the one that brings bad things to them. And Holy Spirit, you got to work in me. Work on this guy as I start to descend these stairs to say, no, I want good for that guy. I want good for that person. Then as you go further, you, you do exactly that. You wish well upon them. You pray for them. You pray for your enemies. You pray for those who have hurt you. You pray for their best. You don't pray that they, God, would you trash them because they hurt me. Then you get to the bottom of the stairs and you're face to face with this person. This may not be a physical thing. This may be a thing where you're just doing this over in your mind. I have more conversations with people in the shower than I do in real life. Amen? And you release them. And I go through a little exercise. I, I say these words. I say, Lord, right now I release Cor for locking his kid in the car. Right now. And I'm not going to pick it back up. And I might take another step in life and I say, whoop, you know what? Lord, right now again, I release Cor for locking his kid in the car. I, I don't really. That's fine. He was good. It's all good. But use that analogy. Nineteen ninety-six, when we started this church, I had some serious bumps. Every group that I talked to, and there was three of them, uh, all thought that the idea of starting a church at the University of Minnesota was ludicrous. Pretty much. And some of these were from dear friends. <laughs> and it was I wept. I, I wept three times over this church after meeting with each one of those. 
wept. Like, God, is, are you in this or what's the deal? Are you really want me to do this? Because I'm willing to do it. But if this is really stupid, then no, I don't want to do this. I had over the next period of the next five or six years keep re-releasing that groups of people. Sometimes it come up every two, three, four days. Then it'd go over a period of a couple weeks. Then it'd be further. And you've got to stop and realize, who is on the hook? You say, I'm not going to let them off the hook. Well, you know what? These people didn't give two thoughts about me. I was the one being tormented, not them. I needed to release them for my good, not theirs. D.L. Moody says, I believe unforgiveness is keeping more people from having power with God than any other thing. They're not willing to cultivate the spirit of forgiveness. If we allow the root of bitterness to spring up in our hearts against someone, our prayer will not be answered. It may not be an easy thing to live in sweet fellowship with all those who we've come into contact with, but that is what the grace of God is given to us for. And Philip Yancey, in a, in, a, in a great book, What is So Amazing About Grace, said this, In the final analysis, forgiveness is an act of faith. By forgiving another, I am trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. By forgiving, I release my own right to get even and leave all issues of fairness for God to work out. I leave it in God's hands I leave in God's hands the scales that balance justice and mercy. It is a huge act of faith. It's the hardest thing in the Bible to do is to forgive someone who's wronged you. All, all, all the movies in the world, they don't end the very end where the bad guy, the good guy says to him, you know what, I forgive you. The bad guy gets trashed and we all go, woohoo, trash the bad guy. And that's an element of justice. That's a God thing. Forgiveness is an unnatural thing. It's a thing of God. It's a thing of beauty. It's, a, it's probably the hardest thing to do is to lay it down. There's a woman that if you've never seen this movie or read this book, I highly encourage it. It's called The Hiding Place. Her name was Corrie Ten Boom. And she was a Dutch woman who during World War II, being a Christian, decided that she needed to rescue Jewish people. And so they used their house, her and her family, she was a younger woman at that time, her and her family uh, rescued Jewish people through their house to get them out of harm's way. Corey was at a conference in Portland, Oregon, and um, she recounted her story of what was happening as they rescued Jews, and then the Nazis found this house, found that they were rescuing them, and sent their family to Auschwitz. Not as Jewish people, but at those who were aiding and abetting Jewish people. And Corey recounts it like this. She says, My name is Corey Ten Boom, and I am a murderer. There was total silence. You see, when I was in prison camp, I saw the same guard day in and day out. He was the one who mocked and sneered at us when we were stripped naked and taken into the showers. He spat on us in contempt, and I hated him. I hated him with every fiber of my being. And Jesus says, when you hate someone, you are guilty of murder. When we were freed, I left Germany vowing never to return. But I was invited back there to speak. 
I didn't want to go, but I felt the Lord nudging me to. Very reluctantly, I went. My first talk was on forgiveness. Suddenly, as I was speaking, I saw to my horror that same prison guard sitting in the audience. Can you imagine that? By the way, she doesn't recount it in this story, but in her prison, she watched her sister being put into the ovens. There was no way that he would have recognized me. Many years had passed. But I could never forget his face. Never. It was clear to me from the radiant look on his face while I spoke that he had been converted since I last saw him. After I finished speaking, he came up and with a beaming smile, Ah, dear Sister Corey, isn't it wonderful how God forgives? And then he extended his hand for me to shake. Can you imagine? She goes on to say she felt nudged to only do one thing. Put out your hand, Corey. The Lord seemed to say. It took all of the years that I had quietly obeyed God in obscurity to do the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. I put out my hand. And she said something remarkable. It was only after my simple act of obedience that I felt something almost like warm oil being poured over me. And with it came the unmistakable message, well done, Corey. <clears throat> That's how my children behave. And the hate in my heart was absorbed and gone. And so one murderer embraced another murderer, but in the love of Christ. I got two questions for you as we close this morning. How's your life at either end of the stairs? How's your life at the top of the stairs? Are you asking the same foolish thing of God that the, that the servant asked? Are you asking him, oh, just give me more time. I'll be a good person. I can do it. No, really, I can do it. I got the best news possible for you. You can't do it. You cannot do it. What's your life like at the top of the stairs? And I got an even harder question for you. What's your life at the bottom of the stairs like? Are you living, is that a consistency? Would people know what happened up at the top of the stairs by what's happening in the bottom of the stairs of your life? Right now as I'm speaking, I'm trusting that God right now is bringing someone. I know he did it with my, this week this is a hard word for me to work on. And there were people that I needed to go, God, I just released them. I re-released that person. I re-released that person. That person for the first time. What's your life like at the bottom of the stairs? On our website, if you go to our website, hopecc.com, there's a little thing I'll say, current message series. It'll have the, it'll have the uh, logo of this series. If you click on that and go to where the sermon is, this week I'll have, 
I'll have uh, two resources there for you. One is an electronic book that I've been reading. It's great. It's written by Johann Christoph Arnold. The book is called Why Forgive? It's just filled, if you're like me, filled with stories of people and the power of forgiveness in their lives. Incredible stories. I'm going to have it up there. on the, It's a free, uh, as long as you don't print it out and sell it, I'm going to put it up on the website. They say it's fine. It's going to be there. Also, is going to be a forgiveness Bible study. This is the hardest thing in the Bible. Not to comprehend, but to actually do. And some of you may want to spend a little time with God over a series of days working on a Bible study. How can I do this, Lord? I need to get started on the journey. Some of you have been brought up by parents that abused you, or relatives that abused you, or family members that abused you. And you're filled with so much anger and hurt this message right now seems very offensive to you. You don't know what I've been through, Pastor. How can you even ask me to forgive? I'm not asking you to want consequences for sin. Absolutely. And you may not get to the point where reconciliation is ever possible. I pray it is. Just like it was between Corey Ten Boom and this murderous German Nazi guard. But that may never happen. But Jesus wants to give you a gift this morning. The gift is to set you free from that bitterness and hurt. He wants to let you set it free. And to say, you know what? Cast that burden upon me. I will take it. I will take it. I will make sure justice is done. You don't need to worry about it. That's the gift for you this morning. And I know it's hard for you to hear that. But it's a gift for you this morning from the Lord. And some of you may need just to work through a study. And so I've got a study that I'll put up on the web this week. Also, all of our staff will be available. All of our staff, the pastoral staff, Nicole, others will be available. If you just want to meet with someone this week and work some of this through, we'll be around. I'll be down front afterwards. The prayer team will be down at front afterwards. While we pray these last two songs, I would ask you, I'd challenge you to ask, Lord, is there someone right now as I come down the stairs that I see that I want to start choking? Let's pray together. Lord, we are people who owe 10,000 talents. We owe more money to you than there is in the world. We cannot pay it back. Last week we looked at a woman who is desperate, desperate for Jesus, desperate for forgiveness. God, would that linger over in our hearts this week so that as we see other people in our lives, we're able to release them, even people who have really hurt us. And God, for some of us, it's the first step would be to release them today and then two or three hours from now we'll have to do it again and again and sooner those times will become further apart but they will still be there. And it is an act of trust in an almighty, justice-seeking God that we lay these things at your feet. So right now, Holy Spirit, I pray for your power to infuse everyone in this room, everyone who hears this message either through through uh, friends or through online or however, God, that you'd infuse by your spirit the power, the courage, the faith to forgive, to extend our hand and to shake the hand of a murderer. can only do that, God. I can only be that kind of person when you transform me from the inside out. I cannot crank that out. 
I cannot do that. So God, neither can anyone else in this room. And so Holy Spirit, we pray you'd come, even as we close in these two songs, bring those people to mind we need to release and may prayers be streaming up to you as we sing them of release of those people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.